This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 25th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week, contributing correspondent Kathleen O'Grady talks about controversy surrounding the use of Botox injections to alleviate depression by suppressing frowning. Next, researcher Stephen Jang discusses his science advances paper on what turns on the fruit fly sex drive. Finally, we're excited to kick off a six-part series of monthly interviews with authors of books that highlight the many intersections between race and science and scientists. In this week's introduction, guest host Angela Saini talks with Keith Waylu, professor of history and public affairs at Princeton, who helped pick the topics. They talk about the books we'll be covering and how they were selected. First up this week, we have contributing correspondent Kathleen O'Grady. She wrote about using Botox to make people happy. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Sarah. This isn't about making people happy by reducing frown lines, but rather about alleviating depression by reducing frowning. Why do some people think that frowning less could affect depression? Well, the idea is based on the facial feedback hypothesis, which is quite an old idea in psychology. It actually is often attributed to Darwin, writing about it in the late 19th century. He wrote that the free expression by outward signs of an emotion intensifies it, by which he means if you are feeling happy and you smile, the smiling itself intensifies the feeling of happiness and the two enter a kind of feedback loop. This was picked up by social psychology in the 20th century, and there was a well-known experiment that involved people holding a pencil in their mouths in a way that kind of forced them to smile. And even though they weren't actually smiling, they seemed to have better mood to find things funnier when they were in this fake smile. Now, the evidence for the facial feedback hypothesis is highly contentious because that original experiment has shown up in some failed replications. And it's something that psychologists are really still trying to grapple with. But taking it a little bit further into the realm of psychiatry, some people have thought that maybe if you block frowning, that will block some of the negative emotional feedback that might interrupt depression. This isn't exactly settled science. There have been several studies showing positive results that you mentioned in your story, linking Botox, less frowning, alleviating depression. Some people really aren't buying it. What's the problem? What's the issue here? 
Yes, there are two meta-analyses that both look at a number of different studies on Botox and depression, one that came out in 2019 and one that came out this year. And they both look at pretty much the same set of studies that have looked at Botox and depression, but they come to quite opposite conclusions. The earlier meta-analysis says that the evidence is quite weak and that a lot more research is needed before there is strong evidence that Botox can actually be helpful for depression. But the more recent meta-analysis is much more optimistic, even though it found very similar results. So it's really that the interpretation of these results is quite different between these two research teams. I thought this was a bit interesting and counterintuitive. You talk about this idea in your story that large effect size seen in some of these studies were concerning. The fact that people did really respond strongly to this Botox treatment might not be a good sign. Yeah, that is a little bit counterintuitive. So there are a few possible reasons why a large effect size might not just mean that Botox is incredibly effective. One of them is that if you have small trials that only have a small number of people in them, those small trials are not very precise in what they're able to detect. Small trials will often find no effect at all because they just didn't have enough people in them to find something. But when they do find an effect, they usually can only pick up really, really big effects. And so they're kind of swinging wildly from one end of the spectrum to another, no effect, big effect, no effect, big effect. And what you see in the literature sometimes is a handful of small trials all showing very big effects. And that can be a warning sign that there were also other small trials that found no effect that just haven't been published and that you're getting a skewed picture of the research that's been done. So that's one possible reason. Another reason is that early trials might use a kind of different patient population. So they might be looking at patients who have more severe depression and later trials might look at a broader range of patients. And so they might find a smaller effect overall because they were just looking at a slightly different slice of the population. And in this case, there's also a concern that it might just be not just a placebo effect in the people who have gotten Botox and can tell that they got Botox. Right. You might notice if you can't frown, right? You pretty much are going to be aware of it if you can't frown. And you also might notice if you got the saline placebo injection that you can frown. Right. And you know that you're in the placebo group. And that might induce a nocebo effect where people might actually get a little bit worse. And so the two groups could get really, really far apart just because the placebo is not a very good control. Is this something that people are already receiving as treatment for depression? Yes, it is. Botox isn't approved as a depression treatment in the U.S. yet, but clinicians are able to prescribe it off-label hmm. for depression. So some people are already doing that. Why would anyone rather get injections in their face instead of taking a medication or some other intervention? Possibly because other medications for depression come with their own problems. Some people don't respond very well to them. They don't find that they're very helpful. Some people really struggle with the side effects. And so some of the psychiatrists who are prescribing this off-label to their patients say that it's really helpful for patients who have depression that is resistant to other treatments or who aren't coping well with other medications. Testing treatments for depression and other mental illnesses is really difficult. There are often problems, as you mentioned, going from small trials to clinical trials or larger interventions. And then also comparing with standard of care can wipe out some of the gains seen 
what are depression researchers to do? Do they just need to make really, really big studies if they want to take the next steps? Yeah. So in this case, I would say there's actually probably agreement between these two research teams where they both think that what's needed is bigger, better trials. So bigger because that'll allow them to more precisely estimate how effective Botox is and better in the sense that better placebo controls are needed. So yes, it is super difficult. But in this case, both teams kind of agree that it's needed to go ahead with bigger trials. Does it look like there's funding for this type of trial? So for Botox to be approved as a depression treatment, it would need to go through a phase three clinical trial. And there were plans for a phase three clinical trial for Botox for depression. The company that markets Botox, Allogan, announced in 2017 that they'd be running a trial. But in late 2018, they announced that it had been postponed. And currently, it doesn't seem like there are any plans available for that trial to be run. So it seems like that might just be stuck in a holding pattern, or maybe plans have been abandoned altogether. I don't actually know what's going on there. And it seems that many of the researchers looking at this question don't know either. Hmm. It does sound like some clinicians think this is a good idea for their patients, but there are complaints, too, that it might not be ethical to treat someone off-label in this way. Some of the researchers that I spoke to are concerned that it might be giving patients false hope. If we're not clear yet that this treatment works, then prescribing it for patients who are really suffering with depression could be using this treatment instead of something else that might be effective for them. And it could be giving them hope that they are likely to recover when that might not actually be the case. So that's one concern. Another concern is that Botox is pretty safe. It has very rare side effects, but some of those very rare side effects are pretty worrying, like difficulty breathing and swallowing and other symptoms of the toxic effects of botulinum toxin. One bioethicist that I spoke to pointed out that unless there's some reason to use some kind of medication, nothing is really safe. So if we're not sure that there's a good reason to use Botox for depression, then even those very rare side effects do rarely kind of enter the question in an important way. All right. Thank you so much, Kathleen. Thanks so much for having me. Kathleen O'Grady is a contributing correspondent for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for researcher Stephen Jang. We're going to talk about how fruit flies decide to start courtship. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's AAAS.org slash join. Some drives for sleep, food, staying away from danger, they're there for life. Others, like sexual drives, arrive later. Recently in Science Advances, Stephen Zhang and colleagues wrote about how the fruit fly's sex drive arrives. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Sarah. This is an interesting way of thinking about our drives. Some are always there and some come later. And so that makes me think, well, what sets up the timing? What is the cause of the delay or what is the cause of the onset? What are some of the different ways researchers have considered how the sex drive is activated in animals? Sure, that's a great question. For the motivational states that show up later, such as you know, the motivation to mate and also 
the motivation to parent, they show up later. One question for me that we consider is what was missing before the moment emergence? Was the circuitry were just not there, the neurons not connected? Or was it most things were there or just missing for some key ingredients and waiting for, as you said, there should be a go signal that put everything together. In the past, it's been pretty well established that the go signal, especially for the motivation to mate, is probably some kind of hormone. The difference for our study is the fact that we use a system that is, in my opinion, better understood because a lot of the circuit elements or the parts list that make up the circuitries control the core shape behavior have been mapped out. And we're able to just take advantage of existing knowledge and then just go into the specific neurons to manipulate and to see what happens to the behavior of the animal when the behavior shouldn't be there in the first place. That is what happens if we activate those neurons early on, what do we get? Right. This is basically why fruit flies are a good model for studying the turning on of the drive to mate. It's not just they're going to have sex with other fruit flies. There's more to it than that when the sex drive is around for fruit flies. Yes. The mating drive, it's not just a static state. In our case, we use the male flies as a model and the male mating drive is not perpetually high. They do go through a rise and fall in mature animals. For example, we previously showed that if you isolate the males away from females for three days, their mating drive is high. But if you let the males mate as many times as you want, then he becomes satiated. So we know that there's some a little bit up and down for the motivation. And what's interesting here is that for the males to recover from a satiated state, it takes about three days. That's interesting for us because, as you hinted at early on in the, in the beginning of this podcast, that immediately after the males come out of their pupa, that is the moment that sometimes we refer to as eclose, that is when they become the flies that we know with wings and everything. At that stage, it also takes them about three days to gain their motivation to make. So there seems to be some correlation here in terms of timing that gives us a series of hypotheses to test. Like we know how it works in mature animals. What happens when we just take the knowledge we have mature animals apply to this much earlier stage? So what exactly did you do to take a close look at this period when they're starting to acquire the drive? Our first hypothesis, the reason why the male flies do not cord in the first three days or cord very little of it, we thought it's because they couldn't. I don't know if you have seen a fly coming out of its pupa, Sarah. No, I have not. When you see it, it doesn't look like they could do much. <laughs> it's a little bit weak and damp and kind of wimpy. They're pretty wimpy. Their wings are all shriveled up. They're not supposed to be shriveled up. Their abdomens are sometimes swollen. It's not supposed to be swollen. And their stamp, their cytoskeleton is pretty soft. They don't really have a skeleton to control their body. So it was a pretty reasonable hypothesis to think that they just simply do not have the motor skill to be able to perform all the courtship rituals where the male have to look at the female, have to keep track of her, or have to stick out one of his wings to sing her a courtship sound. Those seem to be a pretty demanding task that uh, it might just take three days for the male to acquire the skills to do so. Because we work on courtship, we can take advantage of the fact that a lot of the neuronal populations that control this behavior is known. So we can just stimulate them and see what happens. Hmm. So if they want to court, can they physically do it? 
Exactly. And the way we make them want to court, first of all, is to use this group of neurons called P1 neurons. P1 neurons are not discovered by us. They're discovered by Barry Dixon's lab and Daisuke Yamamoto's lab. And these neurons are often thought to be as the courtship command center for the fly. If you stimulate them, the male fly will court. They will not only court females, they will court anything that looks like a fly. If you draw a dot on a piece of paper, the male fly will go crazy after that dot. Wow. Yes. This seems pretty solid evidence. This is the turn on the courtship button. Yes. The work they did was wonderful. And what we did in this study then, we just apply the knowledge. We stimulate P1 neurons and see what happens when the male is much younger. When we stimulate P1 neurons, we are able to get the males to court as early as the first six hours after they have it closed. So if you think about it, if you can make the fly court within the first six hours and you know, they can do most of the courtship step, then the reason for them to not court much during the first three days is probably not motor inability. There's some other thing that's blocking that ability. That is correct. And the fact that P1 stimulation can get us to trigger courtship gives us a circuit starting point that we can begin to trace upwards to see which components are missing. That's something we can do in the fly. That is something that's pretty difficult to do in essentially every other organism. Okay, so what did you do next? We start tracing upwards. And among the neurons that project to P1 are the dopamine neurons that we have found to controlling mating drive in the fly. We just said a few minutes ago that in adults, there's up and down of the mating drive of the male. And correlating to that is the up and down of the neuronal activity of these dopamine neurons. And when the males are satiated and the dopamine activity is low, we are able to stimulate the dopamine neurons and make the males regain their motivation to mate. We can reinvigorate their mating behavior. So these dopamine neurons control mating drive in mature males. So now if we apply this knowledge to this much younger animal, if we stimulate dopamine neurons, again, during the first six hours after the males come up the pupa, we can get them to court early on. Okay, so you've traced it back another jump, and you've made a connection between the early onset of mating behaviors and also the cyclical behaviors that you've seen in the mature males. That's correct. The only thing we did is to provide a motivational input. So what that means is that the key ingredient that we talked about at the very beginning that was missing for the male's mating drive early on was motivation. So we can trace one more step upwards from there. Dopamine neurons receive input from a loop of two different neuronal populations, the PCD neurons and the MPF neurons. In the first six hours after the males have it closed, this loop seemed to be very quiet, but it's functional because if we, again, experimentally stimulate these loop neurons individually, we can kickstart the accumulation process of the activity, which will then feed into dopamine activity, which will then provide motivational input for P1. When we do that, we're once again able to make the male flies court in the first six hours. I'm talking about several circuit steps here, so let me just paint you a picture. If you're able to shrink yourself and lower yourself into the mating drive circuitry of the male fly, in mature animals, you will see a lot of activity, sort of like you're standing next to a busy highway with cars going straight lines and loops. However, in the juvenile animals or in the first 
six hours after the mails have you closed, you will see the roads are still there, the highways are there, the straight lines are there, the loops are there, but you do not see any traffic. You do not see any activity. So where did this activity go? Right. Where did the traffic go? This is the last point I want to touch on on the results of the paper, which that much to you know everybody's prediction, the answer turns out to be a hormone that's governing the kickstart. When does the process start? And this hormone has a name that's a little bit on the nose, juvenile hormone. So we did work our way back to the hormones eventually. Yes. But now we have a lot more detail about how that hormone turns everything on. And we also have learned that all the equipment is there. Everything that's needed is there for them to begin this behavior, but they need that nudge to start the loop. Yes, that is correct. So as you said, the juvenile hormone is turned on when the males have it closed. And the way this hormone works is a little bit counterintuitive. This hormone is high when the male just closed, just come on the pupa, and it gradually declines over the first three days. In the highway analogy, the juvenile hormone essentially they function as traffic lights, like red lights at the different traffic stops to preventing the activity from going through. What you see is a rows and rows and rows of traffic lights that's really to make sure that there's no activity going through early on in a fly's life. It is when the males age, that is when some of the red lights start to turn into green lights. And that is when the activity is able to flow through the loop, flow to the dopamine neurons, which then provide the motivational input into P1 neurons. Everything else seems to be ready, the sensory processing, the motor capability. Now it has the motivational input. That's when the males start courtship behavior. Let's go bigger. Could something like this mechanism be used by other systems that are delayed, that are turned on later in life? Yes, I can give you one example. Oxytocin is thought to be a very important hormone or neuropeptide, however you want to think about it, for the onset of parental behavior. There is study in NYU by Rob Frumke's lab show that when mice become parents, you have a surge of oxytocin going on. And that oxytocin will go through the entire brain, especially when they study the auditory cortex that makes very important for the parents to be able to hear the pup calls. Now, that is a phenomenon that's very well documented, but we still do not know whether that is a activational role, meaning that it now permits activity to flow through to the auditory cortex, or whether the oxytocin in that case playing structural role is actually facilitating the connection between the neurons that's important for it. We simply do not know, but there is a possibility for activational mechanism there as well. Why do you think this is an interesting area to study? Because previously, what we mostly spend time on, us and our lab, is to look at how does motivation go up and down? You know, what are the neurons are in that signaling how high the motivation is? What are the neurons that make motivation go higher, go lower? What are the possibilities there to invent therapeutic strategies to curb motivations that are too high? For example, you, know, you can imagine uh, one way to treat obesity and eating disorders will be to interfere with the hunger system. But what we saw is that there's also another possibility here to learn about the motivator system and to look at that the point of emergence 
what is going on? Like, what are the neurons that become activated? What are the connections that can potentially be made to learn how does the brain make a motivational system and to inform further research on how do we fix it if it's broken and what are the mechanisms that controls it? Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you very much. That was a lot of fun. Stephen Zhang is a postdoctoral fellow at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. You can find a link to the Science Advances article we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Don't miss the introduction to our new series of author interviews exploring books on the many places science, its practice, and its people are touched by issues of race. Hi, I'm Angela Saini, science journalist, author, and host of this special series of books podcasts. With me today is Keith Wei Lu, Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University and the current president of the American Association for the History of Medicine. His research straddles history and health policy, as well as the politics of race, identity, and health. He's the author of many acclaimed books, including Dying in the City of the Blues, Sickle Cell Anemia and the Politics of Race and Health. And his next book out this year is Pushing Cool, Big Tobacco, Racial Marketing and the Untold Story of the Menthol Cigarette. In a series of six interviews, which will be released monthly over the course of the rest of this year, I'll be speaking to authors of some of the most powerful and instructive books on science and race. Now, the reason that Professor Weilu is here with me is because the editors of the podcast invited him to offer his suggestions for our reading list. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of discussion So before we start the series, in this introduction, we wanted you to have some insight into that process. First of all, Keith, I want to ask you, why is it so important for us to be doing something like this, especially now? Well, over the past two decades, the scholarship on race and science has become incredibly rich, incredibly capacious, and it's grown to encompass fields from anthropology and genetics to archaeology and psychology and race. But in this particular moment, during which the conversation around science and diversity, science and inclusion, science and difference, and science and social justice has become so widespread and so fraught, it seemed really important to bring an awareness of this rich scholarship to a broad audience, which is, I think, what led to this podcast series. Yeah, well, certainly I, as a journalist, have seen so many more scientists reaching out, looking for literature that can inform them on the topic of science and race, which I I think speaks to one of the problems that we have within science and academia in that it's not already integrated (laughs) into the way that we are taught about science to begin with. So can you explain how you came up with the list that you did? Before I do, let me just describe some of the richness of topics. After all, when one thinks of science and race, one can think of the participation of ethnic minorities in science. One can think about the racialized research subject as a crucial part of how science has been done historically. Or one can think about the production of authoritative or consequential ideas about human difference, which has also been a crucial part of the history of science. And then, of course, there is the authority that science has 
in society, in social and political processes, in justifying social practices or social order, progressive social reforms or reactionary oppressive practices. All of this is falls under the umbrella of the scholarship of science and race. So it's an incredibly rich and broad array of topics and fields. uh, And selecting really (laughs) just involves finding portals into the field in order to really introduce potential listeners to what is in fact an incredibly expansive scholarship. There is an arc to it, though. So we start with books that look very much at the history of this topic and then move by the end of the series into science fiction, different ways of thinking about race as we may conceive it within the sciences in the future. But starting at the beginning, what are some of the early books that we're looking at? One of the early books we start with is Sam Redman's book, Bone Rooms, which is a study of scientific racism from human prehistory into the museum. It's a study of how human artifacts, the skeleton, the skull, became so central to the scientific research of the 19th century. We also start with Lundy Brown's book, Breathing Race into the Machine, which is also set in the antebellum U.S. context. It tells the really astounding story of a still used technology, the spirometer. So whether we're talking about technologies that have their origins in the plantation or scientific practices of skull and skeletal collecting, we're interested in the origins of these ideas about race and difference and their legacy today in terms of technologies, but also in terms of the museums that we visit and the collections that still exist. Now, one of the issues with this list, which people are sure to notice, is that it is very US focused. So a lot of the scholars who I'll be interviewing are based in the US. Why is that? That term race has a peculiar life in America, in American society, and thus in American scholarship. In other contexts, for instance, in Europe, the term race is so tainted by its association with Nazi-era anti-Semitic ideologies. It's been so tainted to such an extent that the term race itself, as in biological differences across human groups is a fraught term and it's often disdained across the humanities and social sciences and in the sciences as akin to racism. So you're more likely to see rich scholarship along lines of difference that accentuate caste or religion or class or ethnicity or indigenous identity as the main fracture lines when looking at these issues of science and difference across the globe. Well, thank you so much, Professor Weilu, for offering your brilliant list. And like like I said, it was not easy to put this together. And there is so much more out there. And I hope that listeners will explore it. And I hope you'll tune in for the interviews that we'll be having with these authors over the next six months. There'll be one per month. Until then, I'm Angela Saini, and thank you at home for listening. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. 
The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.